And now the Braves' season hangs in the balance. As Francisco Cabrera comes to the plate to bat for the pitcher. He appeared in only 12 games this year for the Braves and batted only 10 times with three hits. He's 0 for 1 in this series. Pittsburgh 2, Atlanta 1, with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning in Game 7 of the National League Championship Series. The 2-0 pitch. Well hit, but hooking fouled and left. He doesn't walk much. He walked only 17 times in 300 at-bats in AAA this year. He hacked at the 2-0, now the 2-1. Line drive and a base hit! Just as the score of the tying run! Green to the plate! And he is safe! Safe at the plate! The Braves go to the World Series! Hey now. Hey now, everybody. What's up? Steve Bennett here, the Sportscasters Podcast, Season 12, Episode 9. Pretty happy. We're going to get, considering how late we started, uh, which missing almost eight months of the year, we're going to get almost half of the amount of podcasts that we did last year. I think last year I did 26 or so. Sportscasters podcast, it was right about every other week, and I've been closer to every week since I've been back, and it's going to help me get to about, I don't know, if this is number nine, probably get to 15 or 16 before the year ends, we'll see how it goes, but I'm pretty happy with that, been really enjoying it since I've been back. It's October 14th, 2022, again, my name is Steve Bennett, just played the unbelievable Sean McDonough call of the Francisco Cabrera home run, or home run, base hit in the 1992 NLCS against the Pirates. Uh, Dave Justice, Sid Bream scoring. I remember very clearly watching that game. I had just turned 12, and uh, my mom was a waitress when I was growing up, and she was working that day, and she had come home right when the bottom of the ninth inning started and I remember she was sitting there in her work clothes on a recliner and I was kind of hovering around the floor and kind of pacing it was in the upstairs in the second floor of our house we had this kind of family room family room there and we we uh, were watching my mom and I and you know I was explaining to her what was going on what the game meant and we had a lot of fun watching that together and it's amazing to me you know, all these years later, I've had a chance to speak to Sean McDonough about the play. Actually, consider Sean McDonough a friend, which is pretty incredible. Uh, also, on this day a few years ago in baseball history, it's 
you know, that that time of the year with October and the playoffs and all that was the bat flip game. The Jose Batista and Kenny Albert's amazing call. Um, no doubt about it, he says, as the ball hits the uh, hits the stands. But uh, the next day, Kenny was on to talk about that one. And Kenny's also a friend. And I kind of mentioned this on Twitter. And then after I did them back-to-back, started kind of feeling guilty that people were going to think I'm some kind of jerk-off uh, trying to make myself seem like I'm some kind of hotshot or something. Uh, but really, and I say this with no sense of false humility, it's just really fun for me. Someone who grew up a you know a sports media nerd and a sports nerd to have developed the relationships and friendships I have uh, with some of the people that have called some of the biggest moments in my lifetime as a sports fan. And uh, I'm really honored, and it's one reason I love to do the show, and one reason I think I'll always do the show is just because you know meeting people like Joe Buck and Kenny Albert and Sean McDonough and John Wertheim and S.L. Price and so many others, Rob, Rob Mish and, uh, you know, Adrian Dater and, um, so many people who I've made friends with. Uh, and another friend I'm hoping to make through this show is a fellow 716 resident. And his name is Tyler Dunn. And he has a book called the blood and the guts, how tight ends save football. He's going to be on the show a little bit later tonight. Also on the show today, another debut, both guys debuting for the first time on the show. This is a really good one. Joe Madden, the manager of the World Series winning Cubs in 2016. Uh, He also won a World Series with the Angels in 2002. He was the manager of the Angels before getting um, fired this year. He also was the manager of the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Really great interview. Talked to him about the last game of the 2011 series season. Uh, day 162 that year with the big um, insane ending to the season. The Red Sox missing the playoffs and the Rays making the playoffs. The huge comeback over the Yankees. We talked about that. We talked about breaking the curse of the Billy Goat. Really a really fun interview. We'll do that next. We'll update the book club. There's some movement there. Uh, we say goodbye to these two books, but we have two more waiting for them. Uh, Also, we'll do one last thing today. We'll do some plugs at the end, Uh, but really great show. Excited to talk to Joe and Tyler, both making debuts on the Sportscasters. Last week, we had the return of Pablo Torre, which was really great. Got good feedback on that. Also, Steve Hyden, uh, which I'll I'll say right now is not my best or favorite interview, and it's probably no fault of Hyden. It's kind of just more me. Uh, sometimes I can be too protective of things like Pearl Jam and I and defensive. And I don't know why I was because he actually did write a book that was very complimentary of Pearl Jam. Uh, and I do recommend it. But I just didn't do a great job on that one. That's on me. Uh, a couple of quick things before we get to Joe Madden. Uh, I thought the Saints and Seattle game was pretty fun to watch. Uh, the Saints, the bottom line, this is it's really simple with them. Way too many penalties, way too many turnovers, way too many mistakes and breakdowns in coverage that lead to huge plays and way too many injuries. Uh, I think they're in the top five and games lost to injuries, and I'm sure that nobody's had the quality of player uh, that's missed. You know, Mike Thomas has been out since week three. Looks like he's going to be out again. Um, You know, Jarvis Landry's been out. Uh, Chris Olave missed the second half. 
Last week looks like he should be back, though. You know, Peyton Turner, the first-round pick from last year, has been out for most of the year. Uh, Jameis Winston's obviously been out, although Andy Dalton has been better than him this year. That's mostly because Jameis was playing injured and probably shouldn't have been. Uh, The Saints probably lost a game more than they should have this year because they were doing their best to hang in there with Jameis, who was just not healthy enough to play. And I'm still excited to see what he can do with a healthy Alvin Kamara, who also missed time already this year, two games, I believe. I would love to see what this team can be with Jameis, with a healthy Mike Thomas, healthy Jarvis Landry, a healthy Alvin Kamara, but I don't know if that will ever happen. You know, there hasn't been one game yet where this team has been at full strength, and we'll, we'll see if there is. And I'm not making the injury excuse because everyone has them. Uh, the Saints have had a lot of them. Looks like they're going to be without Marshawn Lattimore this week, the week that Jamar Chase comes to town. So that's not ideal. He has a bruised kidney, I guess, uh, trying to help him play safety, which he shouldn't have had to do on Tyler Lockett's touchdown, which was you know, basically just a guy getting deeper than the deepest when he shouldn't have. Uh, and Lattimore does his best to kind of react to it and make a play and can't uh, and ends up injuring his kidney. It looks like we're going to be without him for at least this week. He hasn't practiced all week. I don't know that officially yet, but I would be surprised if he if he plays. But the, the bottom line, injuries are no injuries. You can't win if you lead the league or are close to leading the league in penalties and turnovers. You're not going to win. They, they have no feet left to blow off, right? So that's on them. But they're 2-3, and three, and if they could clean that up, only one game behind Tampa Bay, who certainly hasn't run away from them by any means, who's only 3-2, and two. and the league in general hasn't run away from them. I mean, almost everyone in the league is 3-2 and two or 2-3. Two and three. If they could clean that stuff up, if they could play um, not mistake-free, but closer to mistake-free football, uh, they could certainly be the team that I envisioned them being. I know I was higher on them than most. Uh, I think there's a lot of talent on the team. I still believe that. Um, I've been a little bit disappointed with Dennis Allen. Hopefully he can approve. It's been a long time um, since he's been a head coach, and it was probably naive of me to not anticipate them missing Sean Payton, who's a Hall of Fame coach, the best coach we're ever going to have. So it's maybe a little naive to think that his departure wouldn't be felt, and it certainly has so far this year. Uh, the Sabres uh, made their return to action last night. They won 4-1 to at home over Ottawa. Ottawa's a team that it seems like people think maybe have passed them in development, them and New Jersey. I think we can better be better than both of those teams. And there certainly have to be if they want to make the playoffs, which could be difficult considering how tough it is to make the playoffs in the NHL, which is so stupid. Um I think the fewest percentages of teams in the league make the NHL playoffs versus the other three leagues, which was never the case when I was growing up. It seemed like everyone made the playoffs, right? And uh, as the league has expanded, the playoffs haven't. Now fewer teams make it. It's it's much harder to make it. Uh, but they are the youngest team in the league by average age on opening night. Penguins being the oldest, they're the youngest. Uh, J.J. Paterka got his first NHL goal. You know, him and Jack Quinn are both playing on the team, which I think, is absolutely the right decision. Uh, Rasmus Dahlin scored a beautiful goal last night. He looks electric. Uh, I hope they can be good. Um, I'm not to the point yet where I'm willing to go down there and spend any of my money on them, uh, but maybe they're getting closer to that. They did ex- extend their coach, 
and I think that was a smart decision. Their coach and GM both got extensions, and I think they earned them. It seems like they're turning things around, and I hope they are. Uh, watched a little bit of Champions League soccer this week. Absolutely blown away still as I'm learning soccer, how easy it is to get kicked out of a soccer game. How little you actually have to do to an opponent to be ejected from the game, and your team has to play with 10 players the rest of the way. It's unbelievably harsh, right? Like if in football, baseball, basketball, hockey, name a sport, someone gets ejected from the game, you replace them with another player. Not in soccer. You get ejected from the game. Your team's down to 10 men. And AC Milan got absolutely hosed on a play that maybe wasn't even a foul in the box. Not only do they give up a penalty, which leads to a goal, they also go down 10 men. Just absolutely harsh. And it's something that I, I kind of snicker about, the way these guys flop and flail and, you know, just die on the pitch minute after minute. They're so hurt. And they, the way they kick guys out and the way they you get a few yellow cards, you get two yellow cards in an international tournament, you're missing a game. It's absurd, 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 some of the rules in soccer. And goals are not goals in soccer. <laughs> Every time you see a goal, it's pretty much not a goal. It's ruled off sides or some reason to not count it. It's pretty brutal. Um, but I do enjoy I do enjoy watching it. I do enjoy rooting for Italian players like Jorginho, who, uh, of course, had a penalty and did not make no mistake. He only misses for Italy, folks. He does not miss for Chelsea. I think he's 1,000 for 1,000. But Chelsea, of course, over three uh, in his last three. Um for Italy, and they're not going to the World Cup because of it. Um, Napoli, best team in Europe. Really excited about them. Excited about Inter. Inter uh, won at home versus Barcelona and then tied them in Barcelona. If they win against the worst team in the group, they're through to the knockouts in Barcelona, out to Europa League. So pretty incredible there. Also, and this is one last thing about soccer, we'll move on to baseball, it's unbelievable to me that they're so obsessed with these draws and drawing and leaving the group creation to chance. And it creates incredible imbalance in their tournaments and in their competitions. There's these teams that get incredibly easy paths to the knockout stages. And other teams like Inter and Barca and Bayern who have automatically know going into the competition that one of those three teams isn't going to be in the 16. And it's ridiculous. And don't get me started about World Cup qualification. And there was the draw for the Euros on Sunday. And supposedly the draw for Euros is uh, for the 2024 Euros. Supposedly the draw, the teams that qualify for the, for the uh, Nations League Final Four are supposed to get these unbelievably easy draws and Italy's drawn with England it's it's insane uh get rid of these draws and balance the group by some kind of ranking or something it makes no sense the obsession with draws at the detriment of their competitions is another very bizarre thing about soccer all right quickly the baseball playoffs we're in the division series uh the Yankees won game one in their series uh, Garrett Cole uh, earned his pinstripes, <laughs> maybe. Uh, they're 2-2 in the bottom of the fifth with the Guardians as we speak right now. 
Uh, Stanton hit a home run. Uh, we'll see what happens there. They had a rain out yesterday. Braves and Phillies are 1-1 as we go into action today. Dodgers and Padres are 1-1. And the Astros are 2-up on the Mariners who have a manager who likes to overmanage and totally overmanage in the first game, a game they should have won and didn't uh, because he overmanaged. And they're in an 0-2 hole and they're not winning that series. And maybe no one in the American League is beating Houston. Because the problem is is the Mariners are now not going to beat them. And the Yankees seem to have never beaten them. And the Guardians can't hit. So even if they beat the Yankees, they're not beating them. So I'd be really surprised at this point if the Astros aren't in the World Series. And who makes it from the National League? I have no idea still. Um, and the Braves are, are, are have a challenge in front of them. Uh, with NOLA today, they could easily be down 2-1, and you're playing for your season tomorrow. Uh, the good news is is that Spencer Strider is playing today, pitching today. Uh, one of the best rookie pitchers that baseball's seen in a while. Certainly the best the Braves have had in years. And he's on the mound today. So that gives me a little bit of confidence that they have a chance to beat NOLA in Philadelphia. So we'll see. Baseball playoffs, you can't beat them, though. One of my favorite sports-related things in the world. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. And speaking of baseball, we're going to come back with Joe Madden, the author of a new book called The Book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life. Then we'll take another break. We'll update the book club. Then we'll interview Tyler Dunn, the author of a book called The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football. And then we'll be back for one last thing and plugs and ending the show. All right, that is the agenda. Let's do it. We'll take a break and be right back with Joe Madden. Our first guest today is the manager that broke the curse of the Billy Goat. He's also been the manager for the Tampa Bay Rays and the California Angels. And he's the author of a new book with our old friend Tom Verducci called The Book of Joe. He's making his Sportscasters debut today. A warm welcome to Joe Madden. Hey, Joe, welcome to the Sportscasters podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate it, man. Like you just suggested before we went on the air, it's been kind of a busy day. Yeah. The day that your book actually gets published. Um, it's, I guess, what's that, like your first uh, win as a major league manager? I don't know. Is it actually like winning a World Series for the Cubs? I'm not sure yet. <laughs> We're going to have to let some time pass. Uh, right. It's yeah. really interesting to me who people trust. And what I mean by that is there's a guy named Al Strachan, who is a sports writer, a hockey writer in Canada. And Wayne Gretzky, this is who he trusted. And he let Wayne – that's the guy Wayne Gretzky would call after, like, a game seven to give his side of the story or whatever. You know, and famously, uh, Ahmad Rashad, trust, uh, Michael Jordan trusted him. Seems like, obviously, if you're going to do a whole book with him, maybe Tom Verducci is the guy you trust. What, what is it about Tom Verducci and, and his style and his approach and things like that that made you want to work with him in this capacity? Yeah, great points all the way around. Well, uh, Tom and I have you know, gotten to know each other over the years. 
And with Tom, I, I just see, and I use it in the book a lot, there's all pure intentions. Tom is not about his own personal agenda ever. Um, he's reporting what he's assigned to report upon. He, he's, very, he's a great listener, not a good listener. And, and, and then on top of that, if you've read his books, his ability to put things together, research it, and, uh, and actually just purely his writing skills are above and beyond. So, yeah, you're right. You've got to trust somebody to do something like this. And um, Tommy's easy to trust. I think that's why he's so popular throughout the industry, uh, the different jobs that he's held. Um, all of that because when people talk to Tom, you believe you're going to get a fair shake. You're going to get, you're going to, you can trust the guy. And, uh, for lack of better explanation, that's it. Like you mentioned those other guys. I, I even, even in a book I talked about after I was interim manager one year with the Angels, all I wanted to do was talk to Gene Mock. I needed to know what Gene thought. Mm -hmm. uh, so I get it. I, I, I have people like that in my life today and it matters. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, that Joe Torrey in the Torrey years of Verducci book, you know, the, uh, the Cubs World Series, who's going to tell that story? It's Verducci. I remember when I started this podcast back in 2011, I was speaking with someone at PR uh, from Sports Illustrated at the time, and they said, you know, you, you can definitely talk to anyone that wants to come on. There you know, no problems here. They said, but you probably won't get Verducci because he turns down Mike and the Mad Dog, and it's not because he is trying to be any way. He's just very focused on what he's doing. He's very heads down. He goes forward. You know, and he's almost saying like he's not a self-promoter like that. And to have him on four or five times or whatever I've had, that was always a big honor to me because I thought back to that conversation. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was just really interesting to me to, to see you guys work together. How did it work? I'm interested in stuff like this with process. When I see two game, two names on it, did you guys sit down and do a lot of interviews? Did um, I, I saw you talking a little bit about how working on the title, about how he kind of just said one will come and, and, and you guys just kind of sat back and waited on it. But what was the process like in terms of, working with each other to put this book together. Yeah, it started in 19, uh, 2019, and uh, I approached him after I was uh, with the Cubs. So I asked him, what would he feel about doing a book? And he said, sure, because we had kind of broached the subject in the past. So we decided the premise is going to be um, comparing and contrasting managing in the major leagues from the 1980s to present time. That was the primary um, thought. And then the second one would be to incorporate Maddenisms, all the different uh, sayings that I've had over time that I've utilized as motivational. So that was it. And then, okay, uh, I'm trying to find time to do all this. Uh, how do I sit down? How do I become uh, disciplined enough to sit there and, and just uh, get my thoughts out? And then here came the pandemic. And yeah. so, I mean, with 2020, once we got, uh, were sent home from spring training, I was in an RV park in Mesa. Uh, East Mesa, Arizona, and I just got a dictaphone, clipped it to my a microphone to my shirt. I rode my bike almost every day for almost 100 straight days and recorded. it. And I would record about 45 minutes to an hour a day. And then I would send them to Tom, send them to David Black, our agent, and also to Sean Desmond from uh, the publishing company, 12, their book. And then my wife, Jay's sister, Louise, would transcribe. And they'd get it all that same day. And by the next morning before I wrote again, they would come back with Thoughts and have you have? Uh, can you go in this direction? Could you dig uh, down more deeply on this particular right. thought? So I was being directed constantly for like I'm seriously 100 days, and I got a great tan. I lost some weight. <laughs> you know, I wasn't eating too much. Uh, getting great that. sleep. Yeah, I mean, I was focused. Like you're saying, I was focused on one thing for like three months, maybe before we got back. So that was the process. And then once I got to a point, I said, Tom, how are we doing? 
He says, I've got plenty. We're good. And then he moved on to his writing uh, tasks. That's fascinating. I love hearing stories like that. And I think you brought up an interesting point because when I was telling my brother that a weeks ago that I was getting this book and, and that it was coming out and we were going to have a chance, I was going to have a chance to speak with you. He's like, wow, he's got a book out already. And I think there's this misconception that yeah. when you left the angels, you sat down and, and scribbled every thing you were mad about or whatever. And people right, realize it right. don't realize it doesn't work like that. Right. I mean, it takes a lot more. No. Yeah. You well, know, we, when we, when we began, we were trying to decide, okay, when would be a good time for this to come out? And then like you're suggesting, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, between schedules and time and then just uh, artistic moments, uh, the ability to sit there on Tom's perspective and uh, put it together because Tom does great research. Tom has his own opinions and he's got great research and is, and then he, and then he weaves this stuff together really expertly. So yeah, that's from 2019 thought 2020 begin. And then I think we were done uh, the beginning, like this, this uh, end of 2021, beginning of 22, he was actually done writing. The first time I think I really started reading a little bit about your philosophies and the things that made up your DNA as a manager was it, I think Jonah Carey wrote the book. I think it was called the extra 2%. Yeah. And it, it kind of got into, uh, the way that Tampa, uh, was utilizing the, uh, information, which I think, it's more commonly known as analytics, but I, I think you even make the point in the book. I think it's really, a, it's information. Um, right. And I think that was the first time I really got to kind of understand where you're at with it. And I'm interested to wonder if you can think back to, and maybe even if you want to go further to when you were with Anaheim in the late 90s, early 2000s, how, how do you think or what maybe is the main way that having that information as a manager has evolved since those earlier times when I was reading about you in the extra 2% versus now when I'm reading about you in the book of Joe? Well, it started in the nineties, uh, late eighties, early nineties. Uh, I was kind of doing all this stuff by myself and this, I'm not patting myself on the back. There was nobody else doing it. Yeah. There was no, no such thing that there was information. There was advanced scouts and you would create different kinds of forms with the advanced scout. You were at the mercy of the guy sitting in the stands and what he was able to take in write down on a piece of paper and then present to the team before their next series. And of course it was always about the one team in advance of the team that you saw. So really a small sample size, as they say. So that's how it began. And then I went, got into taking stat sheets and extrapolating from that. I created my own um, uh, spreadsheet so I could set up my defenses. And then I would just watch, I would try to steal signs. I would, I would track when a runner ran, I would track when you bunt it what the count was, number of outs, who the pitcher was, what the defense looked like. I mean, I'm doing all this stuff by myself, so it took me almost like six hours uh, on a game day for a three-game series to present all my stuff and for me to get it in, in order. So this is what I had been doing from 1995 until I got to the Rays. And then I showed Andrew what I was doing. He says, God, you don't have to do all that stuff. We'll get people to do this for you. So uh, we, you know, he developed his uh, our baseball ops at that time and i gave them the little cocktail stuff that i liked and i wanted and of course he had his ideas and they did too and it morphed into this that sheet that i keep in my back pocket all the time during the game that i'm always referencing i've always said it's dripping with analytics and numbers and it is uh but it was all born of the mid-1990s and the different thoughts that i had in regards to if i'm going to manage this game what do i need in order to make good decisions so it got to that point it was pretty much there 
And it was uh, probably an evolution of matrices or matrices, whatever you want to call them, information. And it got more deep, more people were involved. And all of a sudden, it gets to the point where, gosh, I mean, baseball ops departments, they could have 100 guys in them, whatever. Right. And so now all of a sudden, if I hire you to be an analyst, what do you do? You analyze. And you start looking for things that maybe are interesting to you, but don't really help me win a game tonight. And definitely doesn't help my shortstop on the 2-2 count. Uh, so it gets to the point where it becomes over-the-top, overbearing too much. And I consider that information that's necessary if I'm going to acquire a player, not in a pregame situation where I'm trying to beat the Phillies tonight or the Braves in their, in their playoff game. So it's gotten to the point I was become obtrusive. There's too much of it. Um, and it's not. It's not why teams are winning. Uh, don't be deceived. Teams are winning because they utilize it to acquire good players, and then good players win. It's as simple as that. Right. So that's where the evolution has occurred. It's gone from that. Uh, I'm serious. I used to get criticized for what I was doing. It's like, it's too much. What are you doing? Why do you have that computer with you? To the point now where I can see it's gone way too far to the other side. I want them to back off. Yeah, I think the point you made in the book was that initially analytics was meant to serve the manager and now it seems like the manager is serving the analytics like almost like the roles have flipped agreed a hundred percent and that's it is and that's part of why there's a disconnect in the game that's why people don't like i don't like to watch a game and all i hear about is exit velocity and launch angle and spin rate i mean that's not why i'm watching this game is anybody focusing on winning is anybody focused on winning this game or what it takes to play winning baseball Nobody even talks about if somebody lined up their uh, cutoff and relay properly. Was the ball thrown right? Did the outfielder throw it on the line? Did he put a little hump on it so that the relay guy could get his feet in position to make the throw? Nobody talks about that. Kids, when they watch a game, kids have no idea. They're not being taught baseball. They're just a, a taught another math equation or a method to, I guess, that, that makes sense to them. But I'd like to see us do a better job of teaching the game, the fundamentals of the game, and when you're reporting on a game, actually report on the game and not just this numerical data. I always think of those guys in major league in the outfield yeah. when the, when the one home run and the guy's like, it's really high. And the other guy's like, who gives a shit? It's gone. I always <laughs> right. think of that when I get in these really weird <laughs> debates awesome. about, about like spin rates or about yeah. uh, the exit. I'm like, who gives a shit? It was gone. It was a home run. What does it matter if it went 110 off the bat or 86? I don't know. It's a one run it's either way. Right? Drive. Yeah. It's called yeah. the line drive. You're trying to hit, you're trying to hit line drives. That was a well-struck line drive. Now, if it was 115 or 110 or was it 90 or 105, I don't give a shit like you're yeah. saying. It was just well-struck. It was a good swing, a good approach. The ball stayed on the line, which is where most of your bases should occur on the line. Yeah, I always think of those guys. <laughs> those guys crack me up. That's a great point. Yeah, uh, I was thinking about you were talking a little bit about people from the front office calling down to you, telling you take – uh, you know, Mike Trout out of a game and the way that some of the analytics have become intrusive to the manager and, and not allowing the manager to do their job. And I think about these guys, you know, uh, Boone has always been criticized in New York about how he is by a thing. I was watching the game the other day and uh, I can't remember who is style. Maybe it's glass uh for the Rays, And he's got like 65 pitches. Like, well, it's a six inning. We got to take him out. And then within 30 seconds, it's bases loaded, nobody out, and the Indians have their best player up, and they it look at they got out of it right, um, yeah. But um, they did eventually lose the game, and who knows? Maybe you get two more innings out of out of your All starter right. there, and then the bullpen isn't where it is, and that you know who knows. But I I just wish I know as a fan, 
when I'm thinking about my team, I want to know that my manager is managing the game, not nerds, not notebooks, not anyone else. I, I think uh, also the Rays game a few years ago in the World Series, you know, where the the the, the started that was the 2021, I think, in in uh, in, in mm-hmm. where they were in Texas. He's right. dealing, dealing, dealing. They take him out of the game, and it's like right there they lost the World Series, and it's not for any reason other than being a slave to these to this information and i'm with and i think i'm very much with you or like i know how valuable the information can be uh, but i also know how valuable a manager's instincts and abilities and thoughts and just living in the moment in the game because sometimes those analytics are very much 2d you know and that's the the 3d part of baseball is why i think a team's pay managers eight million dollars a year you know whatever the best can make and I think there's a question in there somewhere, Joe. I think you know where I'm no, going. No, I, I get it. Yeah, I, mean, I, love you... the 2D co- I love the 2D comment. Yeah. Um, okay, why do you take out Glass now? The only reason why you would take him out is because he's coming off of an injury, and you really have a threat of pitching, of having him throw too many pitches on that day. You're always going to look at what he threw the last right. time and he that's fair. pitched. Yeah. Right. That, I mean, I don't even know what it was, but I'm just saying that would be the only reason why you take him out. Right. But what you're saying, and it's true, it's the voice in the back of your head. Because you were told if he gets to a certain point, if he gets six out of him, get him out of there. Let's get into our bullpen, start matching this thing up. That's what he's been told. I'm here to tell you there's not one manager that I've ever known, I don't think, uh, back in the day or even up to like maybe 2000, I don't know, 5, 10, that would have taken a guy unless he was being careful based on uh, health-wise. So sure. if Glasnow's cruising right there and there's no issues in his, in his history, there's no way you take him out of that game 100%. But the way the game is, is driven now, you're right, that's what happens. And then you'll hear people comment on TV saying that even though it didn't work out, it was the right thing to do, which drives me insane. Um, wisdom, feel are no longer valued. It's all about control. Yeah, that's too bad. The the sportscasts are here with Joe Madden, the World Series winning manager of the Cubs and also one with the Angels in 2002. Uh, his book, The Book of Joe's, one he wrote with uh, Tom Verducci, and it's available on sale today as we record is, is uh, launch day, an exciting day for an author where all that hard work turns into something that people can now go to the store and buy. But I want to, the, the book is interesting because it's a memoir in some senses. It's also like a business book in some senses. It's also a self-help book in other ways, but there's a lot of fun moments in there. And I want to ask you about a couple. And one was, I always think about the 2011 season and the way it ended and that insane last day of the season uh, with uh, day one, you know, game 162 and the the Rays and the Red Sox and, and the, the finished everyone's scoreboard watching and who's, is there going to be a day 163? What's going to happen here? What do you remember most about just managing that day? And, and I mean, it's really one of the most remembered regular season days in baseball history, really. What do you remember most about it? What sticks out? Is there a cool story from that day? Or, or well, The way the Yankees got off, I mean, it's a share hitting a grand slam and then hitting right. another homer. I think it was a three-run homer. Um, what stands out to me is that once we got off to such a bad start, or they got off to a great start, it's protecting your bullpen. That's all I could think about because at that point, you're rooting for 163. Right. That's it. I mean, there's, there's no other way to look at it. Uh, you're, you're already start to mentally managing for the next day. And that would mean to not throw your better relief pitchers in a situation where you have no chance to win the game. So all my guys were down at that point early on. And then here comes Longo eventually hits what a three run home run. 
and makes it like seven three or something to that, and, and I can't remember the exact numbers. Mm-hmm. And then here comes Longo again later, and here and he's driving in a couple more points, and all of a sudden, before you know it, uh, we're getting close. And then I said, forget it, we're going to use all of our relief pitchers. So that it was all. It's always about your relief pitchers. It's all about your bullpen almost all the time. So in the beginning, save him. You got close. We got to use him. We want to win tonight. We don't want another game. Um, and then after that, uh, I'm watching, and I knew Rivera was not going to pitch that night. The Yankees are already clinched tonight. Gerard, there's no way Joe is going to use all of his normal guys. So they're out, and I felt good about that. And here comes Scotty Proctor, and I'm a big fan of his. I uh, used to had a couple of beers with him at one point down there in Tampa, and I liked the guy, Gritty. And he comes in, and he's pitching forever. And I thought he was hurting. I mean, from the sideline, I thought something may have been bothering him. And I'm thinking, God, because I, I know how tough he is. He's going to grind it out, and he did. And then I look at the scoreboard, and all of a sudden, a run pops up there for uh, Baltimore. Whoa, here we go. And then in a matter of seconds, <laughs> yeah. here's the wind up the pitch, and there's a line drive in the left field corner. It's just like you go to the ballpark that they have no clue, like zero clue, of what the result might be to the point where you're in the playoffs by the end of that crazy game. So I, I, I could see all that stuff. I could remember the thoughts that I had had clearly. And it was one of the most interesting nights in the history of our game. And to be part of that is, is really remarkable. And I, I remember as a fan, for as, as toxic sometimes as Twitter can be, that that was just such a fun Twitter night because everyone was just reacting to everything in real time. You know, uh, former players, writers, fans, everyone just kind of reacting. I mean, it was 7 nothing Yankees going into the eighth inning. Right, and, that's uh, what it was yeah, there. yeah, and you guys got six in the eighth, one in the ninth. I don't have this good of a memory. I brought it up for us so we could relive it. Well, a the little. other thing is yeah. they pinch hit home run to tie it by Danny Johnson, and Danny, Danny Johnson, the beautiful man. Danny Johnson, what made him such a great pinch hitter was before his at bat, he would be upstairs uh, with his legs crossed at his locker room with, with the crossword puzzle. That's how Danny would get ready after he was kind of loose. So I had I had it set up for um, him to bat later in that inning. I was anticipating guys getting on base, but then all of a Sammy Fold was going to bat in that spot, but here it came to two outs, nobody on. We needed something, so I said to Davey, get Danny. So he goes upstairs, he gets Danny, comes down, and a kid by the name of Wade was pitching, and we had, all, we had, had with the Rays, he's a reverse split guy, meaning right-handed better than against lefties and righties because of a great right, Yeah, Corey I, Wade. I, yeah. I, I knew that. Mm-hmm. I knew that. So, you had that info. But you got you, you to take your chance. And Danny Johnson already had the probably the biggest tournament in the history of the Rays against – uh, Papelbon in Boston in 2008, and here he comes out of nowhere, brought him back on board, two strikes, one hand Fred, one-handed swing, hits the fair pole down the right field corner. My God, man, think about it. I mean, all this improbable stuff happening, and then, of course, eventually Longo goes in the left field corner where we had lowered the fences in order to possibly have Carl Crawford make more spectacular catches, and it benefited us. Yeah, make it up. Awesome. That was an awesome night. Really cool. Yeah. Really fun. Uh, I'm going to go fishing a little bit here. Uh, go ahead. See what happens. Uh, I'm a big Pearl Jam guy. I've been to yeah. – I went to two last month, so it got me to 86 shows. Uh, been a fan since wow. I was t- 10 years old. And uh, so for me, one of the great things about the run in 2015 and 16, both years really, uh, with the Cubs was watching the joy in the – for Eddie Vedder, seeing him behind home plate in all the games – with his scorecard and all that. And I remember uh, comedian Craig, 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 Ga- Craig, Craig Glass, uh, Craig, I don't know, comedian uh, took a really cool video from Cleveland, okay. while, you know, the last outs, and you could see all the Cubs uh-huh. super fans kind of reacting to 
the World Series drought ending, which is really cool. But I just wonder, do you have an Eddie Vedder story um, of him being around the Cubs or the Cubs organization or something like that that a Pearl Jam super fan could appreciate that you might remember from your time in Chicago? Oh, my God. I mean, I was I, I was on stage with him twice, once at, uh, God, was that iconic little theater next to the Vic uh, Theater? Wrigley. Pardon me? The Vic Theater? No. No, not gosh. the Vic. Uh, I'll remember it. Okay. Um, it's a little hole in the Metro. The Metro is right down the street. Sure. Yeah. So my first year, I think it was my first year there, Eddie doing a uh, concert in, uh, to benefit um, Theo's uh, charity foundation, uh, the, the foundation to be named later. Anyway, he's up on stage and he's calling us all up there. And before you know it, I'm up there, I think, playing a tambourine, singing in the same microphone as Eddie Better. <laughs> Sick. And then, yeah, then yeah. he did the same thing to me in uh, Arizona a couple years later. He had a the MLB innings kind of concert right on the river there. Okay. Same thing. I'm Very standing cool. in the back watching. Yeah. All of a sudden, he calls me out front. And I got a bottle of wine, and I got to pour him a glass of wine, and I take a hit. And he goes on, and he starts performing after that. But the first time I met him was at Old Wrigley. He came in the manager's office after the game with, I think he had his Cubs helmet on, sat down on the floor with a bucket of Coronas, and we just started talking. That's amazing. That's awesome. I just texted him yesterday uh, about – I sent him some pictures from my backyard here. We stay in touch all the time. He's a beautiful man. That's awesome. That's really cool. You have a favorite uh, Pearl Jam song or Eddie Vedder song or anything like that you want to throw out? Um, I, I, I love I love when he uh, – it's not original in a sense, but I love when he does Beatle covers. Okay. That's what I, I told him that. I God dang it. I mean, I think you do them better than they do. So uh, there's times when I'll be on uh, – I'll be driving or even here in my, my home. And a, a cover will come on him with the Beatles. I text him all the time like an idiot, and just to remind him how much I. Because he's he's good friends with uh, George Harrison's widow. Okay. I can't remember her first name. Um, and of course, he's great friends with Springsteen and all these dudes. But that doesn't even matter. I like Eddie. I don't yeah. care what he does. This <laughs> this dude here, he and I have connected. Uh, we share a lot of common uh, thoughts and and uh, uh, interests and. Uh, so yeah, whenever Eddie picks up any any old Beatle tune, man, I just I just love it. Glad I asked. Yeah, the show the last show I was at was actually the day that the Queen had passed away, and he did uh, "Hey Majesty," uh, um, which okay. was pretty yes. cool. Yeah, from uh, yes, Abbey Road, absolutely. I think. Yeah, so yes. so yes, yes, the Beatle covers can uh, can be great. I agree there. Oh, he, but he he's like made for them. He's absolutely like yeah. his voice. Hide your love away is method. a good one. He does. That's yeah. my favorite. Yeah, that when he does, that's the one when. When that pops, yeah, those. Hey, I mean, those, it's, yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah. it's almost like uh, Elaine Bennis and her boyfriend. Whenever uh, Desperado comes on the radio, <laughs> yeah, they start crying. That's great, very good. Uh, let me ask you this: I always hear about the rain delay and uh, Jason uh-huh. Hayward kind of earning a hundred million dollars with the whatever he said to the players and right. and all that. What, what did you do during the rain delay? What were you thinking at that moment? I was checking out the weather map. Um, yeah, and it happened. Uh, Joe West uh, had to go see Joe, and Joe told me it, he said it's going to be a 17-minute rain delay. And I'm thinking, I go, Joe, God dang, what did he buy 17? But he said 17, <laughs> and it probably was something like that. And we went upstairs. I was there with Jed Boyer because the um, the way the clubhouse situated, you go in the dugout in Cleveland, you go down steps, and you go down to this uh, weight room and meeting room. There's an area there for hitters to get ready um, with the net. And then you walk up the steps, get to the clubhouse and the manager's office. So I'm going by the downstairs weight room. All the players are peeling off in there. And I didn't, I didn't know what's going on. And um, 
somebody said, uh, Jason's having a meeting. Great. I thought to myself, great, perfect. Because I don't, I should not have that meeting right there. When a player does, it just, it just resounds way more uh, loudly. So I went upstairs, looked at the map with Jed. We're trying to convince ourselves we're going to be all right. And then you go downstairs, you walk on the field, and my God, I remember seeing Schwarber. I'm thinking, my God, this guy just woke up. It was like, it was like the, the game hadn't even begun. They were so fresh and ready to go. And that's exactly what I thought. I thought, I cannot believe how fresh our guys are after this really difficult moment. Right. And they gathered themselves, and now they come out, they're ready to go, and they were. What a game. What a night. What will you remember most about breaking the curse? I mean, it can be silly, I know, but, you know, the, 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 the Billy Goat and all that. I mean, in my lifetime, I've been lucky enough to see, what, the White Sox broke a 50-some-year streak, the Reds broke theirs, and, and obviously you with the Cubs. What, what will you remember the most about just, just, just getting that and getting that done? The Grand Park uh... – uh, situation, the parade, and then at Grand Park, there's a, I think there's a photographs in the book of me uh, facing this uh, sea of humanity. Uh, picture was taken from behind. I got my jersey on. I got my kind of orange-red Vans on and the cap. And and I'm thinking, I, mean, I remember specifically, I could yep. not have been more calm, and I don't even know why I was. I think uh, at that point, the sense of accomplishment was sinking in. And just by my loving music, I could I called it uh, Cub Stock because all I could think of is <laughs> Richie Havens being pushed out front. Hey, Richie, go get this thing started. Let's go at Woodstock. And all of a sudden, here you are being Richie Havens uh, several years later. And that, those are my thoughts. And it was strangely calm during the whole time. Yeah, an estimated 5 million people attend the 2016 Cubs Victory Parade and Rally, making it the largest gathering of humanity in the Western Hemisphere history. <laughs> Amazing. How about that? Yeah, and th that, that is a great debris. photo. I'm looking at it right now in the book. Um, yeah. yeah. Really cool. Uh, again, the book is called The Book of Joe, um, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life. And it's, a, like I said, a great book, not only if you want to learn about Joe, but also if you want maybe a little self-help and the, the isms and, and what they mean to him and how they can be applied in your life and help you. Um, I also heard a real, maybe we can end on this. I heard a, an interesting thing. You're talking about the next opportunity, how, how you want it to be and the plan you have on paper and the idea of, uh, you know, coaches for each position and the, the way you want to attack it. When you think about your future and, and I, and I think from what I've heard and what I've read that you see managing in it, uh, what do you, what do you hope? What, what do you hope, like, what's on that list of, I still got to get out there and do this? Like, what are you still hoping to achieve? Is it maybe perfecting the way baseball and analytics interact and, 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 and taking this thing that you sort of started with the computer in the 90s and perfecting it in, in the late, you know, in the, in the 2020s? Or is it winning a World Series in another city? Or is it, what drives you to put the plan together and want to do this despite all you've accomplished already? Well, the biggest thing uh, would be that, uh, baseball is referred to as a national pastime again, that we can create enough interest, uh, more Love interest, that. get get more people on board, a lot of the young fans that are undecided or don't even know if they're even trying to choose or not, to get them to like our game, want to follow it. Regardless if you play or not, it doesn't matter. It never mattered if you played or not. It's just a matter that you dug the game intellectually. You were, uh, you love the charismatic figures involved, players and, and managers. Believe me, there was, and you know that. Uh, people are just fans of Earl Weaver or Billy Martin or Gene Mock or Whitey Herzog. Uh, these are the guys that I truly respect and admire. So uh, if I could somehow uh, help regarding 
the, our game being referenced as the national pastime again, based on a greater balance and a real game of baseball being played, uh, chances being taken, not worried about making mistakes. If it doesn't analytically make sense, that's okay because it might be just from an entertainment perspective, it might be kind of fun to watch. So just get out of the way. Let the game be played. Uh, be there. Uh, be subservient to the game. And please do not want the game to be subservient to you. You can find Joe Madden on Twitter. He's at Mad Halos, M-A-D-D-H-A-L-O-S. Uh, and again, the book is called The Book of Joe. Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life, Joe Madden, Tom Verducci. Uh, Joe, do you have a World Series uh, prediction after seeing the wild card rounds? We start the DS, uh, the Phillies and Braves kick it off here. Who, who do you like? Yeah, I'm watching. Do you got to? I, I, the teams I played, I didn't see any, I didn't see everybody this year. You know, the Yankees are good. That's an understatement. But I like Houston. I, I do like Houston. I like their pitching. I like their first baseman a lot. I like their third baseman a lot. Um, I kind of like the way they play. Um, but more than anything, I like their pitching. I think their pitching could uh, keep almost anybody down in a short series. And their bullpen is better than you think. Um, so I'm kind of interested in them. Of course, my boy Andrew with the Dodgers, you, you can never discount that. Absolutely not. But I just think Houston's interesting on uh, on the American League side. Uh, you know, the Yankees, of course, are going to be right there. Cleveland would be along. I'd love to see Cleveland advance. But I, I think it would be uh, Houston and the Yankees uh, – Excuse me, uh, Houston and the Dodgers, and I think uh, I think the the Houston pitching can do it. And I think everyone would love to see Dusty Baker win a World Series for sure. Yeah. Um, Dusty's my Dusty stays in touch, brother. He loves what we're talking about. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, the the, uh, the thing the other day with Buck, would any problem with that? That that's just within the gamesmanship. Cool, right? Um, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, um, of course it is. It's it's within the, the gamesmanship of the game. Um, I, but I did point out, though, without technology being so prevalent in the game, um, you would have just thought from the side that, man, Musgrove's really on today. He's the on, yeah. So this thing about spin rates mm-hmm. and, uh, being quite brought into question, I don't know if that's something we want either. I mean, but that it's never going to go away. The, the Pandora's box has been opened, of course. But that's why that was challenged, because of technology. Although I did, I did see Buck gathering some baseballs earlier in the game. Yeah, I saw him. He had two in his hands, kind of looking at him. I saw that too. Yeah, yeah. So that might have that might have precipitated it. Also, Uh, the book of Joe, trying not to suck at baseball and life, available wherever books are sold. It's out today, so by the time you hear this, which be just being a day or two, but it will be available. Twelve books, great publisher, great people there who helped me get a, a really a great opportunity. For me, I, I'm really honored, Joe. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, anything else you want to mention or plug that I didn't? Nope. Um, oh, okay, we're good so there. You're on top of stuff, bro. <laughs> I, mean, I think philosophically, we're kind of lined up a little bit. I think bit. so, too. Um, you know, so I appreciate all that I do. Do you have any questions for me? I don't. Okay, good. You. Joe, how you, old are you? How old are, how old are you? 42. Just turned 42. Okay. Yeah. You're doing well. Thank you're doing you. really well. Stay with it. Stay All right. With it, man. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Joe, for the All time. Right, Steven. Be All well, right. brother. Be Thank well. Thank you. Bye. I was a little too tall. Could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high.
Well, that was pretty awesome. I want to thank, first of all, 12 Books for believing in me. Uh, Steph over there especially has been great for helping me interview Joe Madden. Super cool. Uh, in a second, thanks to 12 Books as well, we're going to interview for the first time Tyler Dunn on this program. Uh, his book, part of the book club, The Blood and Guts, How Tight on State Football. We'll talk to him about that in a second. Also, don't forget the book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life. Just spoke with him about that. That was released this week. The Blood and Guts is released next week. And that means where are we going, Steve? Well, we have two books to talk about, still maybe three. Uh, I'll let you know what the maybe part is. The first one that's definite is a book called uh, Macy versus Ronaldo. And it's by Wall Street Journal reporters Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson. And uh, this book is about the incredible rivalry uh, of Macy and Ronaldo. And the first excerpt of this book came out today on the um, Wall Street Journal, ran an excerpt from it. And it talks about Macy and Nike and how Nike had let him get away and how he ended up uh, elsewhere and not with them where you think the greatest football player in the world would be uh, but he ended up elsewhere that book again it's called Macy versus Ronaldo one rivalry two goats in an era that remade the world stage by Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson these guys have another book coming out soon uh, which I'd really like to feature as well and I'm going to talk to them about it um, and it's a pinned tweet uh, it's it, it's going to be called the club how the English Premier League became the wildest richest most disruptive force in sports. And that comes out December 4th. Oh, you know what? That came out in 2018. So that's a book they've already done. So we'll have to talk to them about that one as well when they're on the podcast together uh, in a couple weeks. So looking forward to that. I think November 1st, I speak with them. And again, they'll be together. Uh, really looking forward to doing that one. Another one uh, that came up this week uh, is a book called uh, Evolve or Die by John Shannon. And uh, that book is one that, it's a hockey book. It's come up really quickly. Uh, I'm not going to have a lot of time with it. They want to do the interview on Tuesday. Um, so I guess I have to say yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I usually like more time with the book. Because um, as of right now, as we speak, I don't even have one. Um, but, they're going to send a PDF over, and they want me to do this next week. Uh, the book is called Evolve or Die. It's a very, very dramatic uh, title by the author John Shannon. Hard won lessons from a life in hockey. Uh, so I'll read as much of that as I can this weekend. And on Monday, speak to him on Tuesday, and he'll be on the podcast next week. Uh, the other book that's kind of a maybe is a hockey book as well. Um, they say there's one coming. I have not seen it yet. Um, if it comes and I'm more confident it's happening, I'll talk more about it. Uh, but it's one I mentioned before that I'm shocked. Uh, you know, I'm shocked that we haven't had the chance to talk about this yet. Um, but I don't know. Some people aren't that interested in, 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 I guess, doing this. And it always surprises me when they're not. But it probably shouldn't. Um, 
Like again, this is a show that I do in my bedroom. So <laughs> it's not like uh, authors are sitting at home saying, oh, no, if I don't do the sportscasters, my book will bomb. Uh, but there's certain ones that just seem like a really good fit. And, um, you know, you look at the book of Joe and, and, and Joe Madden is everywhere doing this book. And he finds 45 minutes or so we talked. And then there's other books where I reach out and I, I feel like it's a little bit of a niche book and the niche fits really good. And I reach out to them and, and I want to be real accommodating. It just doesn't happen for whatever reason. So uh, that's life as an independent podcast. I guess you win some, you lose some. But talk about winning some. We're going to do that with the debut of Tyler Dunn. Awesome, awesome interview. Can't wait for you to hear it. So let's take a break and we'll be right back uh, with Tyler Dunn. Our next guest today grew up in Western New York and is a graduate of Syracuse University. Uh, he made a name for himself as a Packers beat writer, writing features for Bleacher Report. And has kind of went on his own uh, with a site called Go Long, uh, which is awesome. He's a fellow 716 guy, and he's making his debut on the show today to discuss his book, The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Tyler Dunn. What's going on, Tyler? How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, man. Th- thank you so much for yeah. having me on. It's an honor. Anytime I can have a fellow 716 guy um, on the podcast, I have to do it. You know, I love it. Especially one who's doing as well as you, writing books and doing podcasts and a great uh, Substack type website and uh, all the great things you do. It's, uh, New York Times on the side. We'll get into all of it. But um, yeah, really excited to have you on. Where did you go to uh, high school in this great area? Yes, I, I appreciate all that. Grew up uh, about an hour south of here, so okay. Great Valley, New York, to be super specific. Great Valley, okay. Uh, the, I'd say the edge of Great Valley in Salamanca, up in the woods. Salamanca, okay. Uh, went to high school at Ellicottville. I should say every school. I mean, uh. every pre-K through uh, the 12th grade, everybody's in the same building at Ellicottville. But yeah, I went, went to ECS. I feel like in the Airbnb era, people are obsessed with Ellicottville. It has grown like exponentially since I even graduated high school, whatever that was, 06. I mean, it's it's unbelievable how Evil has just blown up. I mean, Fall Fest was last weekend, and I've never even been there. It's a team though I'm from there. Right. And like you literally have to drive like a half hour out of your way if you really want to like get beyond Ellicottville to see your family. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something about Airbnb and how now people have a place to stay down there beyond like the, you know, that by the golf course there's that kind of hotel type of thing that people invested in and they they own the properties but they also run them like hotel but now there's you can just stay in any, all these different houses and i think that i don't know maybe i'm wrong about that maybe it was super popular before and i just didn't notice i'm not a skier so i wasn't a big uh i, I always played hockey so i can never skis my parents didn't want me to break my leg during hockey season or whatever same you know what i skied up until about sixth seventh grade you know all the ski programs he had it was the mm-hmm. same deal though got into playing basketball and it's like well you kind of had to pick one or the other and we just we just went all out with basketball it's like my god we had this like palace for outdoors right in our backyard i did i never really took advantage of it not that i regret it i mean, love playing hoops but yeah it is nuts how you can take take for granted uh, what holiday valley really is in your backyard yeah i remember telling my mom like i'm a really good skater like why do you think i'm gonna not be a good skier he's like no you'll break your leg the first time trust me <laughs> Just no. 
I was like, all right, you know. And then I think well, like a couple weeks later, the Cher's ex-husband like ran into a tree and died. She's like, see, see what happens, see what happens. I'm like, all right. And then you've got Rob Gronkowski, you know, growing up in Buffalo. He, yeah. The first time he goes to Holiday Valley, right, he pops his skis on and he just flies down like one of the more difficult hills as fast as he can. So not to jump ahead too far here, but yeah, it's like, there you go. There, 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 there's Rob heading down to Holiday Valley wreaking havoc and there's no bunny hill needed for Rob Gronkowski. I was thinking about this when I was reading about Rob Gronkowski in the book. We have potentially the best tight end of all time, definitely in the conversation from Amherst, right? I know his senior year, I think he went and played high school football in Pennsylvania or whatever, fine. He's still from here, born and raised here. Patrick Kane, probably the best American hockey player of all time, certainly in the conversations from here. Um, Christian Leitner, maybe the best college basketball player of all time uh, yeah. from here, uh, from what, Angola, uh, went to Nichols. Um, South yeah. Buffalo, the baseball pitcher, which uh, the old timer, who am I thinking of? Warren Spahn, is it? Um, oh, from here? Man, the baseball's sh- a different language for yeah, me. The but street I, yeah, the is, is named after him, um, right by Casanova Park, you know, from here. So it's insane how many um, – and, and you write about Al Quippa, um, which is where Dick is from, which kind of starts the book, Al Quippa, PA. And the great S.L. Price wrote about how so many great football players have come from Al Quippa. Uh, Dicka, Ty Law, um, uh, the running back, uh, uh, Dorsey. Darrell Revis is from Darrell there, Revis, right? um, or maybe, maybe it was Revis when I said Law. Maybe I meant Revis. Um, or maybe it's both, but definitely Revis is right. Uh, cause I heard him on, yeah. um, I heard him on Pat McAfee maybe when he was on Sirius and they were talking about being from this cool place in Pennsylvania that. Uh, all these football players are from. And since I had read S.L. Price's book, I was like, oh, it's El Quippa. But um, yeah, so definitely yeah. Rebus. Maybe I was wrong about a lot, but maybe it's a lot too. It might be a lot too. Tons of people. I, I don't know why I'm interested in that. Like when Patrick Kane was growing up here in South Buffalo, like he was from there. Tim Kennedy, uh, who played for the Sabres, was from there. Uh, Mike Radchuk and his brother Pete Radchuk, who both were, uh, Pete was a first round pick of the Avalanche. I think Mike was a second round pick of the flyers were from there like this little part of buffalo that really isn't even a part right south buffalo technically doesn't isn't really even a place um it's just this, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just you know buffalo but the south the south part is sort of they just adopted that but um that's so true yeah swings as we know 9-11 tavern yes i've still never had that that's the one like monster wing place in buffalo i haven't had because it's such a pain in the ass you know what I mean? They're like, yeah, you got to you know, go. Everybody says that, though. I feel like lately it's been great. Like, Has it? The, last, the only three times I've gone, it was like, boom, got got in there, got a table. You know, you hear the horror stories of waiting three, four hours. And, and like, like standing on people's cooks front lines. Yeah. Right. It yeah. was normal. It was normal and it was phenomenal. Yeah, I have to go. I have to go. Because I've been to every other place anyone mentions. You know what I mean? Like, I've been to the mall, but I haven't been there for whatever reason. You think they're the best? It depends what you're looking for. I just like, you know, basic, standard. Yeah, hot, I'm a Buffalo right? hot. Yeah, it, Buffalo it, sauce, it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, a lot of meat. Um, then I think that's the way to go. But if you like getting a little crazy, you know, obviously Barbell with the Cajun honey butter. No, barbecue. I don't do any of that. I get I get medium or hot. Yeah, and, and they're still incredible at Barbell. And, and same with El- Elmo's got the dry rub, right? If you like dry rub, Elmo's. Yeah, well, Elmo's has got the double dip, right? That's their and thing. the double dip. And yeah. you get to see Tim yeah. Graham there. 
Like I've never been oh. there and Tim Graham is not there. See, like, I welcomes you to the place. <laughs> could talk about TG and Elmo's uh, yeah. for, for this hour. But yeah, yeah, we we just did a pod. I'm like, Tim, we have to get together at Elmo's. Every time I yeah. see him, like, we used to do this all of the time when we were colleagues. It's been way too I know I've got two kids. I know life has changed, but I need to trek to the North Towns yeah. to eat wings and drink beers with Tim Graham. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and then you get the double dips there. Duff's is still my favorite. I know Duff's has had the um, what happened early to Anchor Bar, where it just became kind of flagged as a mm-hmm. place tourists go, and and it, it, for a long time it was Duff's. Oh, tourists go to um, Anchor Bar, but the real Buffaloans go to Duff's. And then I think Duff's was on so many TV shows and got so popular <laughs> that it, it it became like Anchor Bar. Oh, that's for tourists, and that's and then as they got. <laughs> Is they got more locations, they weren't consistently great. Like the Orchard Park one is not as good as the original. And um, so you have to be careful what you're saying when you say, I think Duff's is the best. I think the Duff's on Sheridan is the best. That does not necessarily translate to their location in Texas. I don't know if those are good there or not. (laughs) But uh, it's so true. It's like music, right? There could be like a really good band, but then they, they literally are playing on every other commercial and every intro to every sports event. And then eventually it's like, my God, these guys suck. Like I'm I'm tired. I can't even think of a good example, but like I'm tired of hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Foo Fighters. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another, they're good. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm with you. Duff's is good. Yeah. I'm not gonna bad talk Duff's. Yeah, the Foo Fighters became like that rock band, like the one that was allowed to still play at the Grammys and at the, you know, this and that. Dave Grohl's this everywhere, and I like them. You know what I mean? I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy, but I mean, I like Foo Fighters. They're fine. And I always, I remember when they their first album came out. For the first six months, I thought they were called the Food Fighters. like i that's what i thought you know i thought someone said oh dave Grohl's having a new band and he might have actually even been wrong too and said food fighters or he said foo and i heard food either way but for like six months i was walking around telling people yeah the guy from nirvana is in a new band they're called the food fighters (laughs) (laughs) i I love maybe maybe you're onto something right i mean what is a foo fighter i I don't even know i don't know yeah behind the actual name Yep, my first concert was Guns N' Roses and Metallica at Rich Stadium, and there was a food fight. So I thought maybe Dave Grohl was there, and that's what it was about. That, that, I like it. Yeah. Oh, that's a badass name. I mean, if somebody was smart, they would just name their band the Food Fighters right now, right? Right. You could trick about 50% of the people maybe to come and think that they're going to see. Wow, Food, fight, food Fighters are playing down the road pretty cheap. Wow, 16 bucks to get in. <laughs> <laughs> Clean house. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're playing that place? Really? You can see <laughs> You know, the Riviera Theater, the food, 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 oh, food fighters. Oh, I was way off. Uh, the blood and guts, how tight ends save football. Why tight ends, Tyler? What made you want to write a whole book about tight ends? You know, I think it really started in this. It, it ended up taking on a life of its own and became just an absolute life passion right that anybody writes a book it's like it's at the forefront of your brain every second of every day and yeah you better as hell love what you're doing because it's always there you know um but what really first got me into it is as a consumer of the sport i love what the sport was always intended to be and that is violent it's physical. Only a, a select few of general humanity are willing to step into this world that is unlike any world 
it's a profession unlike like we can't relate to. It. It's not like you go to the pharmacy and just you know slug a coworker with a forearm shiver in the chin, <laughs> and then ten minutes later you're sitting down at lunch, Studying film, you know, yeah. laughing about each yeah. other's family. It, it's just it, it takes a it takes a different brain, it takes a different body, it takes a different temperament. Everything. It's um I don't know, I, I feel like that's how we all kind of fell in love with football. It's it's. Uh, the, there's an element of risk that is inherent uh, to the sport that other sports just don't have. I mean, I, I played all sports growing up at Ellicottville and, you know, loved basketball, you know, ran track for Franklinville. But our football team, man, there's something about under the lights when that adrenaline rush is there and the pressure is highest. And you always have those moments like early on, is this for me or not? Like it's you, you're hitting your friends and they're hitting you. And it's like you either – people either kind of like accept that all or – they don't and they go play soccer not that there's anything wrong with that yeah. um but uh I, I feel go like yeah you know foot football right now i mean my god look at the timing with week five in the nfl with these roughing the passer penalties i, I constantly feel like the nfl is searching for a middle ground that doesn't really exist like they're right. they're siphoning all of this violence out of its product and it's foolish. It's short-sighted. It's hypocritical. It's just dumb. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I listen to Adam Carolla all the time, and I just love how he always says, "Like society is heading two different directions. Like safe spaces and octagons. Yeah. Like two extremes. Like mm-hmm. and the NFL. It's like always been an octagon kind of world, and it's like they're trying to put this safe space bubble around its product. And like, good luck with that. I. I don't. Maybe they're smarter than us all. Like they know we're going to lose our minds about these penalties, but then the next day we're just going to like put in our waiver claims for our fantasy football teams, and the jokes on us. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait, wait until, and I hope this doesn't happen to Bills fans this year. Because, but wait until your team gets robbed of a Super Bowl. Wait until you have to live yeah. with that yeah. feeling. Because yeah. and people tell me all the time, get over it, whatever. No, I'm never, never letting go of that. Sean Payton said to the official on the sideline at the moment, that's a legacy changing mistake. And it was because they were never, never able to get that close again. And they took away Drew Brees and Sean Payton's opportunity to have two Super Bowls against Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. You know, and I don't know if they beat Tom Brady or not in that Super Bowl. I don't know. Uh, They weren't great in the game. The Rams are horrible. Um, But, I just know that that opportunity was taken away, and people say, "Oh, well, if it's come down to one play, no, because if the the flag is appropriately called, and they haven't met one person who thinks it wasn't a flag, okay, I haven't met one yet. If if, if you're the first, fine, but then they run the clock to zero, and Will Lutz kicks a field goal, and we go to the Super Bowl. So I don't, there's yeah. nothing else. That, that's it. It was a legacy changing mistake. And oh, I mean, I hung out with Nicole Roby Coleman that week for Bleach Report. I mean. <laughs> Yeah. He was in shock. Like, of course he was. That was so blatant. Yeah. It was so blatant. And you're right. That could do it. I mean, that that absolutely gets something like that. It's just, um, I don't know. I just have, I guess back to a roundabout way of saying, like, I really wanted to do this almost cross-country tour for the soul of the sport. Because to me, the soul of the sport is found at the tight end position. Like, that is the position that can kind of save what we love about it because i mean obviously offensive and defensive linemen are in the trenches they're hitting each other every play um but they're not as visible they're not as fun i mean they're not catching touchdowns and celebrating and have all these wacky personalities where tight ends i mean you have you you do have to do that stuff but you also get to go run around catch a ball you know score four touchdowns on monday night football right yeah 
like Kelsey totally. just did. Yeah, for sure. So that that's kind of what got me into it. But then once, I mean, as you read the book, once I started hanging out with all of these tight ends, it kind of, it kind of took on a life of its own where um, it's not really an X's and O's book. It, I feel like it almost became more of a human condition book and why these 15 individuals are almost like uniquely qualified to um, save what we do love about football. Couple things I want to go back to because I thought of stuff while you're saying them. One is that point that you make in the book, and I was thinking about this when I was reading it, about the uniqueness of the way teammates interact. I was thinking about that scene from Hard Knocks this year where Hawkinson uh, chips uh, Hutchinson and just absolutely blows him up um, on that play in practice. And Dan Campbell's, I don't know if you saw Hard Knocks this year or not, but there's, it was a big moment in, the, in one of the episodes where they're just running this drill and it's like the battle is like Hutchinson versus. Um, uh, their tackle that they drafted, whose name I'm going to screw up, Sewell or whatever it is. Um, yeah. And and he's so focused on that. And Hawkinson just comes and blows him up with a chip, right? And uh, they're all chuckling about it. Campbell's laughing at him after practice and everything. And I was thinking about that moment when I was reading that point about the book. It's like, yeah, and then these dudes, you know, went in the meeting room and, and, and Hutchinson sang Billie Jean for him. And they all laughed and, and goofed <laughs> about it, right? So great point yeah. there, and that's that's what made me think of it. And the other thing is is, and I know I'm a heel here. It's it's hard for me um, with the rules and the player safety and all that. And look, it, I think the league is doing the right thing when they say we got to do a better job protecting the players. Fair, mm-hmm. makes sense. I get that they have a lot to protect. All that. I always say this when I was uh, in college and stuff. I had a pearl jam habit to uh, to feed, so I would work hockey schools and I would. Um, Go on the road. This uh, it's called the Sport International Hockey Academy, and it travels around. And uh, the guy, our boss, we called him Bobby Poopy Pants. This French guy owns it, and we would we would go and we work the school for a few weeks. And I come off the road, go to six or seven pro jam shows, go back, make more money for it. And I'd be going to back to school, and I'd be like, "Oh, so you got a couple grand?" I like, no, I spent it all pro jam, whatever. But I would meet these Canadian dudes that also were on the staff, and they would say to me, "I'm probably not going to make the NHL, so what I'm going to do after I'm done with hockey is I'm going to go out west." to the oil fields in Western Canada. And it's a really dangerous and tough life. But if you can get through five years of it, and it's good pay, if you can get through five years of it, not pick up a drug addiction, not die of an accident, not get into all the pitfalls there, you're you're set for life. It's this great job. You move into management. It's mid-six figures. It's a cake life. And I'm going to go do that because that's what I can do. And I, I know I can be successful and I know the risks. And I feel like football is, is, is like this now. I feel bad for the offensive linemen for the Steelers or whatever, who didn't understand the risks in the seventies. These guys all know now what happens with yes. concussions, what can happen with CTE. It's all laid out for them. So it's hard for me uh, as a person watching the game at home. Uh, first of all, to, to be, the one diagnosed, like everyone on Twitter can diagnose a concussion from sight, you know, 3,000 miles away from the game just by seeing it, I guess. I can't, okay? Um, and, and, and and I just tend to just like say, okay, they, they're maybe hurt now and they're going to go and they're going to go through this process that the league has set up. And if they decide that they want to come back in the game today, next week, the week after, I just can't get too upset about it. They know the, they know the risks. They know the protocols. They're paid handsomely for it. They're adult men. You know what I mean? I don't get as upset as some people, and I know that might be a bad take on me. People might think I'm being inconsiderate, uh, might be too protective of my love of watching football or whatever. But I don't know what you think. But I like in the, the Tua thing and everything that's happened the last few weeks. This is brought up to the forefront, right? Like they pulled 
there's this overcorrection now maybe because of what happened with Tua, which was hard to watch, right? I, that that scene mm-hmm. with uh, him in the Bengals game, it was hard to watch. I felt bad, but I also felt like Tua's a very adult man who's being kind. He knew the risks of playing that game, whatever they yes. were. He knew what actually happened to him in the Bills game, whatever it was, right? He knew. He knew for sure what it was. Well, if it was really his hip or his back or whatever, he knew that. And he, if it was his head, he knew that. And he went and played. So I don't know. Maybe that's a bad take by me. But what do you think about the way, about that view of it? It's it's hard for me, I guess, to get too upset about that things. Where I hear people are saying, like, I can't watch football anymore. I just can't. These guys, what they're doing to themselves. I just, I'm not there. I don't know. I think that's a phenomenal take. I haven't heard it put as eloquently and perfectly as that by many people in general. I could not agree more. Look, it's it's free will. I mean, this is what these players know they're signing up for. And, you know, I, I guess if I wish the league was a little more upfront about concussions and CTE and made it more clear, not just to the players, but to the public instead of all of these, you know, heads up football infomercials and like constantly trying to convince they come off as phony. mom yeah they come off yeah as phony it comes off as yeah. very phony and mm-hmm. fake and like the last thing they want is anybody talking about concussions and i think that what happened to Tua is happening a hell of a lot more behind the scenes there's a lot more quote-unquote back injuries than the league would like to admit i mean when they spew out these statistics the concussions are going down that's bs right because there's so many that are going unreported but to your point i think that if it's if the player knows what they're getting themselves into, which they, they do, if they're mildly educated they on the sport. Know now. Yep. They know now, yeah. They know. Hell yeah. Like, look where these so many of these players are, are coming from. I mean, Ben Coates, right? He's probably the tight end in the book who's hurting the most uh, right now. Yeah, his story uh, was tough, yeah. You feel bad for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he, he told me he, he doesn't really drive himself and it's hard enough to get upstairs and um, – you know, he's sitting there in his living room just chewing tobacco, spitting, and saying, hey, I would do it all over yep, again. no regrets. Like, no doubt about yep. it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he missed two games in a decade of the NFL. One was because he had a high ankle sprain, which can keep guys out weeks, if not months. The other was because his mom died. And, you know, you know why? Because he's the son of a World War II vet. His brothers fought in the Middle East. And, you know, he grew up on basically the roofs of houses, you know, putting in shingles and not with a nail gun. I mean, he's hammering away and carrying shingles up a ladder and jumping off for quote unquote fun. Um, he, he wouldn't change a damn thing because the game and the league and the sport, everything did so much good for him that uh, like the what are the alternatives? Well, he had the skill, he had this ability and he used it. And I feel like that is the case for. I mean, I haven't done a, uh, a complex study on this, but you're well over 90, 95% of guys who are hurt and would say the same exact thing right now. Yeah, and I think Dickens says the exact same thing, too, because he's another guy in the book kind of hurting. He's obviously much yep. older um, in his 80s, but he kind of says the same as well, and you kind of describe him on the golf course, but there's a walker near and this and that. So, yeah, I, I think that, I think, yeah, like you said, unscientific, but I think we'd find it over and over again. You know, totally. Yeah, I think we're naturally providers, right? And I, I think that the people look around and see what football has provided for them and for their families and for their lives, and how it's changed them. And again, I, I just feel like in this country, in this time, that like you said, free will. Um, that they just they're doing what they want to do. But an interesting thing about the book that I was thinking about when I was reading it was just about 
how it really feels like the position itself is sort of in a golden age in a lot of ways. And I think I think back to when I first started playing fantasy football, and I nobody nobody cares about your fantasy team. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when I first started playing, Emmett Smith was my first pick, it, and he missed the first two games because he was on a holdout, right? So that was the year I started playing. And we would pit tight end as wide receiver. They were combined because it's like, yeah, there's Tony Gonzalez maybe or Ben Coates or one or two that – actually catch the ball but there's not enough for a 12 team league for everyone to have one it felt off now it's like i love playing leagues that all leagues have it as a position now you don't really see that anymore because the way the position has evolved almost every team in the league almost has a tight end that is um not a blocker per se but a guy who is running routes down the seam and and i i think of watching breeze and peyton all these years and how much better that offense was when they had a really good tight end right the offense was much better when they had jeremy shockey or jimmy graham than it was when they had kobe fleener or jared cook um and i just think that as i was reading this and i was reading about the different guys and you know as we got through uh gronk and you know, it will lend maybe Gonzalez to Gronk and to Graham and to, you know, the Hawkinsons and the Kelseys and Goddard, all the great ones now. It just really feels, and you can agree or disagree, that it's sort of a golden age of the position. And the way the position has evolved, um, it's a lot more, maybe glamorous is the word, I don't know, a lot more fun for your favorite player to be a tight end because he's not just the sixth guy on the line, you know, blocking, like, uh, you know, uh, in Jumbo. You know, he's now a guy who who's changing the game, like Kelsey did the other night, scoring uh, four touchdowns and, and leading, you know, Mahomes' first 17-point comeback or whatever. So your thoughts on that? And that's where, really, Tony Gonzalez can state his case as the greatest ever. I think it's it. Rob Gronkowski. You're yeah. right. I, I'd go Gronk because of everything that Gronk Sure. Did. You know, the cult of personality and, you know, how he would just mash people as a receiver and as a blocker. But... You just made a great point because I think Tony Gonzalez, he, he is the one who basketballified and forced the league to change. I mean, he 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 didn't. It wasn't all hunky dory, as people will find out reading this. Like even in Kansas City, he was a little upset with how he was used once Jimmy Ray left. I mean, he was the offensive coordinator that took full advantage of him schematically, um, but. He, he still kind of wasn't used like he could have been used in Kansas City. And then he gets to Atlanta, and Mike Malarkey is his coach, and he wants him in line blocking like he's Mark Bruner. <laughs> and they almost go full fisticuffs in I the wish, locker room. Yeah, I wish it would have stayed that way. <laughs> As a Saints fan, <laughs> I, wish a Saints I wish that would have been the plan. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah. Right, Jonathan Vilma, too. I mean, yeah. he, like, talking to the guys who defended Gonzalez, it's like, we what, what could we do? I mean, it was like he was the Tim Duncan of the NFL where you knew exactly what was coming. It was that turnaround bank shot. And it was Tony Gonzalez getting up to his stem and boxing you out. And there's nothing you can do about it because he's, he's so athletic and he's so big and he's so nimble and he's just so technically sound um, that they had the position had never seen anything like that before Tony Gonzalez. So uh, yeah, I think the golden age is here and it has its roots in Tony Gonzalez because everybody soon after Tony Gonzalez, everybody's looking for that that kind of player. Um, th- that's why I really wanted to give Jimmy Graham like his just due because I mean that's crazy. I, you know, Tony Gal- Gonzalez played college basketball, but he played college football. You know, Jimmy Graham is just blocking shots and and dunking basketballs on the court. Right, he at Miami, plays one yeah. year of college football. Yep. It's not a heck of a lot. Um, and 
you know, all of a sudden he's this hot commodity. And, you know, Bill Belichick actually wanted him the year before. He wanted him straight out of basketball and was giving him an, a chance to, to maybe get on the practice squad. And we got that full story. It's I feel like Gonzalez to Graham to what we see today where there's always basketball players being tried out and they're always getting the shot. It's everybody wants that weapon because um, it's kind of like that, you know, that, that really, really good basketball player, that power forward who's 6'6 six, six or 6'7 six, even, they just, they're too short for basketball, but at tight end on a football field, like, look out. They can dominate. Yeah, and whenever the alternate universe discussion with LeBron James comes up, what if LeBron would have said, forget basketball, I'm a football guy? It's always tight end, right? It's always, yeah. oh, LeBron would have been the an all-pro tight end if that's what he wanted to do or whatever. Uh, so I always think of him. Could have been. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about Dallas Clark, but since we got to Jimmy Jimmy Graham, just sort of naturally, let's talk about Jimmy for a second because it's such an interesting story. You know, this this guy, again, like you said, a basketball player. Um, really, I think Sean Payton really had a vision for him, and it, it developed way faster as a Saints fan. I remember when he was drafted and, and hearing about him and hearing what Sean wanted to do with him and how quick it kind of came along. How fast it happened was pretty incredible, too, which is, I think, a credit to Jimmy Graham's talent uh, more than anything. Uh, but, you know, he's this guy. He's a pilot. I remember every time he would tweet a picture of him getting on his plane, I like couldn't sleep the next 24 hours. Like, oh, pray to God that plane landed safely. Like, I'd be so nervous about him or whatever. Um, and, and this guy who changed the rules about dunking, you know, because in that game against the Falcons, he made the – the thing goes sideways, the, the goalposts go sideways, so they had to change a rule on that, which um, is hilarious. But I also felt like, you know, as interested, I also felt like he was never quite the same when he left because mm-hmm. he's such, he's a really interesting kind of guy who wants to be loved. And I always felt like in New Orleans, he was loved. Breeze loved him. Breeze treated him like a son. You know, Peyton loved him, worked so hard to get him where he was. And as soon as he left, it was that, that contract negotiation, I think, sort of. Spoiled yep. things a little bit where he kind of wanted to be paid like a wide receiver. And I remember he even changed in his Twitter profile, right? He put wide receiver instead of tight end. And, <laughs> you know, it's just too bad that it just couldn't have been worked out because I, I felt like it got spoiled a little bit there. And then when he went to Seattle, he's just miscast. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think he was loved the way he was in New Orleans by the fans and the team and the players and all that. And I don't know if you feel the same way or not, but I, I just always felt like he was a really unique talent and a really interesting guy and a great player. And I'm glad there was as many words in the book about him as there was. Could not agree more. I think that uh, Jimmy Graham would probably agree with you in retrospect and, and do everything he could somehow stay with, with Drew Brees longer. Mm. I, I think that's a, a little bit of, not jealousy, not necessarily envy, but yeah, probably a little envy of, of what Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski were able to build together in New England when they're when they're together that that many years. I mean, we can poke fun at Rob Gronkowski being a Neanderthal. The dude is is a football savant. I mean, he's running those option routes and seeing what Tom Brady sees, and and Jimmy Graham had that had that with, with Drew Brees. I mean, they they had a, a magical thing, and Jimmy Graham was. I, w- I think maybe we've forgotten just how physically and athletically gifted he was. I mean, that that little three, four-year span, I mean, if you were to extrapolate over the over an entire career with that, he he would have been the best tight end ever. I, I really agree with Jairi Evans and Greg Williams and some other people that were around him. And 
and that yeah, Jimmy Graham had the gifts and had, had most of all the determination and the drive. He wasn't just this soft finesse basketball player. I mean, this dude, he went to the U. Uh, his mentor was Jeremy Shockey, year one in New Orleans, and Jeremy mm-hmm. Shockey really passed on that badass, like, take-no-shit mentality to Jimmy Graham. I mean, you read in the book, and th- those practices with the Saints, I mean, Fridays especially, when it was, like, best on best, they would do whatever it was, a handful of plays. I mean, Jimmy Graham, it, it was next level with his competitiveness. I mean, he would take the football and just chuck it at Williams's head, and they would just be F-bombing each other left and right. Offensive players, defensive players would start fighting. I mean, he'd get into it with Malcolm Jenkins all of the time. They wanted to kill each other. And Sean Payton and Greg Williams, they just let it go. They loved it. I mean, a lot like those days back in the U when uh, Jeremy Shockey and Ed Reed would go at it. Um, it was good for, like, the soul of the team. I mean, you need that stuff. And Jimmy Graham brought it. It didn't last long, unfortunately. Uh, and I think that all parties involved probably wish it. It just they figured it out because Jimmy Graham did deserve more money. He fought for the tight end position to get more money in a way that Tony Gonzalez and everybody's thankful for because it is the most underpaid position in all of sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, for whatever reason, didn't work out. He goes to Seattle, and, and yeah, like the, the injury, the horrific injury, could have freaking ended his career to bounce back from that and actually make the Pro Bowl. says a lot about Jimmy Graham, too. But he should not be lost in history. He is an all-time great. And I'm just so thankful that uh, Jimmy was willing to kind of give me as much time as he did. Yeah, and I love Mac. Max Unger was a really good saint, but he wasn't Jimmy Graham. You know what I mean? And um, I always think back to – I joke about uh, the, the Breeze-Payton era was uh, – it's going to be the best era of my life as a fan. But we also lost a lot of playoff games that had names. You know, they don't name many of them, but, man, we played a lot with names, right? Like we lost the Minnesota Miracle. We lost the Beastquake game. We lost the, um, uh, the Catch 3, which is the game I always think of with Jimmy Graham because – Oh, yeah. You know, Vernon Davis eventually scores the winning touchdown, and people always try to say that it was Alex Smith who scored the winner. He didn't. Uh, and after Alex Smith scored that touchdown on the um, on the bootleg, I remember saying to my wife, I was watching the game with my wife at my house, and I said, the one thing they're not going to let us do is get behind them. So Breeze has got to be patient here. There's plenty of time. And what happens instantly is Jimmy Graham gets behind them because they just couldn't stop him. You know, right. and he was so great in that game, and he dragged someone to the end zone with him, you know, to get ahead in that game again. Um, and it's, uh, you know, one of two times that Breeze in the playoffs brought the Saints back from a 17-point deficit, and the, the defense couldn't hold it. And and, and in both right. instances, he gave them a late fourth-quarter lead twice. But I always think about Jimmy Graham in that game, and it's a great tight end game because not only did Jimmy Graham – obviously make that amazing play to put the Saints up again, but then it's Vernon Davis, the tight end, who makes the amazing catch and holds on um, to give the uh, the 49ers the win. But I, I always think, <laughs> I always, uh, I, I wanted to talk real quick. I know we're probably running out of time. The sportscasts are here with Tyler Dunn. His book, The Blood and Guts, How Tight End Safe Football is, it comes out next week, right? As we talk. Do I have that right? Tuesday, October 18th. You, Tuesday, you got it, man. Yeah. Yep. Tuesday, October 18th, and Go Long um, is his thing that you, you got to go. GoLongTD.com. Check that out, and you can get all the information about that. And I'll give Tyler a chance to mention it all, too, at the end. But um, quickly, I want to talk about um, Dallas Clark because, believe it or not, I have the St. Super Bowl DVD, and I've watched it a few times, a few thousand. Um, and uh, <laughs> and there's this one part in the game where the, the – ambush happens to start the second half 
And um, Saints, Pierre Thomas scores on a screen. Saints take their first ever lead in the Super Bowl. Um, and the, the Colts get back on the field. And they haven't had the ball on offense in like 45 or 50 minutes of real time because there was the long halftime and all that, right? They hadn't had it since they went three and out after the Saints had went, got stopped on fourth down. This, all this is not necessary. Sorry. So um, Peyton Manning makes this unbelievable throw to Dallas Clark around the sidelines. And there's a scene in the um, in the film where Sean Payton is screaming about, we cannot let their best player beat us. It's a sin. We cannot let their best player beat us. And I was lucky enough uh, through my friendship with Kenny Albert to have Jonathan Vilma on the show. And I asked him, did you guys really believe that? Did you guys think that Dallas Clark was the best player? You know, even more than, say, Reggie Wayne or whoever else. Maybe you'd want to mention on that team. Peyton Manning, you know, they went 14. Oh, they're full weapons, a great team. And he said, yeah, we did. We thought he was the best player they had. And, um, I, you know, I think maybe his career was maybe shorter than we remember. I don't know. But I, I think he's an easy guy to forget. Uh, but, man, he was awesome when he was good. And and that's some proof of it there. Going into that Super Bowl, one of the best Peyton Manning Colts teams there were, Sean Payton and Jonathan Vilma thought that was the best player on that offense. I mean, you know, Manning aside, it's, it's a different thing but uh, the best position player was was uh dallas clark what, what, what did you you learn about clark and think about him and his career and and how dominant he was during his run with the colts you know a, a lot like graham another tight end who just does not get his just due nationally where yeah i mean the there's the x's and o's schematically he's the one that took the colts offense to another gear another level I mean, they were really good before he was drafted in the first round by Bill Polian and, you know, it worked his way ahead of Marcus Pollard and, you know, was operating in the slot and all that. But he he, he took that no-huddle offense and that Peyton Manning at the line of scrimmage, changing everything in a split-second offense to a different level because, you know, before Dallas Clark, there weren't a lot of tight ends built like that that could just dominate from the slot where are you, you put him there. All right. How are you going to do it? If, if you're going to bring out a little tiny cornerback, he's just going to drive you downfield as a blocker. Like, I mean, is Dallas Clark going to take on DNs? No, but in the slot, you know, he'll, there's the threat of him blocking you there and, and, and being a weapon because you put anybody else out there, he's going to kill you as a receiver. Um, and it all kind of stemmed from, you know, the work he did with Peyton Manning and had a great conversation with Peyton Manning for this as well. I, I think we, when we think of a quarterback and a receiver in the offseason training, they're working right up that Coriel route tree, right? They're working one through nine and they're just honing their craft. And maybe they're even out there two, three hours. But I think what made Manning and Clark different, aside from all the pranks that they pulled on teammates, which are hilarious, I mean, they, their pranks were legendary in training camp, uh, they would just, you know, target one specific route one specific play on a on a day and work on it 20 times 25 times and you know they'd get it down to an inch to a centimeter they'd know exactly where and when each other had to be where the ball needed to be how to defend it or how, how to run that route if it was defended a certain way and then you see what you see you know even take it back a few years to 06 when Clark's really coming on at the end of the year because Brandon Stokely's injured and out, and he becomes a slot receiver against Baltimore. You know, Peyton Manning's not playing well. Um, they're on the road. It's loud. Rex Ryan's confusing them with all these different coverages, all these different defenses, and they need a big play to, to get a field goal and ice the win. And it's Dallas Clark 
running that out route. And I, I don't know how the ball gets there. I don't know how Dallas Clark catches it. It's one of the best playoff hookups that you'll see in any era. And it's all from the work that they really did each offseason in their own way. So um, we get into how what, what everything that leads to this moment, leads yep. to that catch on Corey Ivey, um, it's, it's not by accident. I mean, Dallas Clark, what he's been through traumatically with his mom dying in his arms, with being buried in Iowa as a linebacker and his appendix bursting and you know suffering all these injuries and puking in his first game in Kansas City. I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of stuff on the field, off the field with Dallas Clark that, that leads to a play like that. But um, just uh, unbelievable getting to know Dallas. We talked... Guy, we talked it several times for several hours. I just, I just couldn't get enough. And he threw out an Uncle Buck reference, which is one of the. Uh... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I appreciated that about Dallas Clark that he. Yes. Yes. An Uncle definitely. Buck fan, you know. John, rest in peace, John Candy. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, again, the book is called "The Blood and the Guts." The Blood and Guts: How Tight End Save Football. Do you have a new favorite tight end or a tight end that maybe you didn't? love or appreciate as much before the book that after doing the work that you're like man that's my guy now you know yeah yeah i mean most of them but if i'm gonna pick one (laughs) i will say uh you know i feel like i always appreciated ben Coates as like a 90s kid and living here in buffalo like seeing what he did he remember he caught the touchdown on the just give it to them game uh sure on the 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 pass interference that shouldn't have been but i'm gonna probably go with you know jackie smith i was as naive and ignorant as it comes, like everybody, when it comes to Jackie Smith, I just remembered the Super Bowl drop that plays every February that has defined him. Um, yeah, I mean, he is an all-time great. He he redefined the position in his own way, kind of stretching the field, but getting together with him in St. Louis and, and really seeing how that, what, two, three seconds in time completely changed his life for the worse for decades and he didn't really get over it until 2020 um it it really hit home i mean i've been telling everybody this it's it's like i was kind of sitting there with my grandfather i'm just one of the kindest most gentle fun energetic uh human beings that you'll meet in your life he's 82 years old he's in unbelievable shape but uh you know it was his mind that was affected i mean he 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 had as many scars as ben Coates. it just wasn't outwardly you know, apparent to everybody. Uh, I think that he let that moment um, unjustly, unfairly uh, define himself to other people, and it affected his relationships um, with loved ones, and it, it took a long time to kind of turn a corner, but he did. He's in a great spot. It's an ongoing battle, and I, I feel like I gained an appreciation for Jackie Smith as a human being as much as a player. Uh, one thing I love about the book, and I'll say this as we kind of wrap up, is that I love how there is a there is a narrative to it. Of course, is there is value in reading it page one to end. But also, you can kind of throw it on the back of the toilet, and next time you're in there for a bit, just pick a tight end <laughs> to read about, right? Like you, yeah. you can just go say, "I'm going to read uh, Know Your Worth." You know, I'm going to read the the Jimmy Graham chapter. I'm going to read Iowa Made. You know, I want to learn a little bit about. You can do that. You can jump around that way if you want. You know, read about this tight end or that tight end. Jeremy Shockey, uh, one of the few uh, New Orleans Saints to score a touchdown in the Super Bowl, uh, which, of course, is what he's mostly known for. Um, doesn't really <laughs> ma- matter who you want to read about. Um, it's a great book, and I appreciate the chance to uh, read it and to promote it with you. Why don't you give the listeners the rundown, everywhere they should go, what they should listen. I think we're going to have a lot of Tyler Dunn fans if we didn't have them already. Uh, who are going to want to read and listen and consume you? Where can they do it? 
Hey, man, I, I appreciate the, the opportunity and the conversation. And honestly, if we didn't have a, a this book tour going on, I'd want to talk to you for another hour here because this has been awesome. Um, but yeah, if you want to buy the blood and guts, probably the easiest way is how we buy everything, right? Just hop on Amazon. Amazon, yeah. Uh, it's right there. Hard, hard, hardcover, definitely the way to go. But uh, sure. there's also Kindle, audiobook. I got to say, the dude who did the audiobook, um, I, I didn't want to narrate it myself because people hear my voice enough on our podcast sure. and radio shows. The, the guy who does the voice is awesome. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, buy the book and the audio book. Why sure. not? Um, and the, the EPUB <laughs> version, too. Yeah, get the Kindle or iPhone version yeah. as well. Yeah. I did that for Seth's uh, Patriots book. It's better to be feared. It was a great experience. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, the day job is the one I just created myself here in Western New York. Uh, GoLongTD.com, part of the Substack platform. I just write features, long form, you know, with, with columns, with podcasts, all that stuff mixed in. But um, left Bleach Report, gosh, it would have been two and a half years ago, uh, launched Go Long. And so far, it's been unbelievable. People want to read and support independent journalism, uh, long form writing. I've been blown away by the response. And we've kind of built up a, a cool community you know, of people who just who just want to learn about the game and, and want to learn how it works behind the scenes. That's always the goal. I, I travel out of the country, um, hang out with players for profiles, but really get to know these teams on, on, on a deeper level and understand it for better for better or worse. And um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. And yeah, even on the local level, you know, we try to build that sense of community with the you know with the podcast they do with Jim Monis. Uh, he used to be the Buffalo Bills um, assistant GM. Basically, he was Doug Whaley's right hand man. He's one of the brightest football minds. I know. And actually, he's a part of the book, as you saw. Yep. He's the scout that scouted Jimmy Graham, which yep. is crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a lot of fun. And yeah, the Isaiah McKenzie show as well, uh, the Buffalo Bills slot receiver. We uh, get together eight times a year. We've got four down. So just check out the dates if you want to hang out with us at Mr.'s Bar and Lanes in East Aurora. Okay. It's not Fatties anymore? So I do the pod with Monus at Fatty. Okay, okay, and Isaiah. Okay, uh, gotcha. Yeah, the Isaiah show is at Mister's. Yes, yeah, so we got a lot, a lot of moving parts right. there. Yeah, you can probably maybe the best thing to do is just go at Ty Dunn D U N N E on Twitter, and you can kind of figure it out. Or maybe even better, golongtd.com. And if you go to the about um, column there, which you wrote on September first. It kind of breaks down the different columns, you know, the Friday feature, the Monday after, the Q&As, the podcast, different shows. So that's a good way to figure everything out, too. All right. Do you have any questions for me? When can we get some 9-11 uh, Tavern Wings? Yes. I feel like something needs to happen, you know, or or maybe we just grab a beer. Some way, somehow would be great. Great to meet you. We're, I, I feel like I, I've been doing all these, you know interviews and whatnot for the book and we're all across the country me and you we, it feels like we're on different planets because you're north towns i'm south towns but we're very very close geographically so Absolutely. i want to do this again but let, let's make it happen in person somehow i'm all for it i'll save your number hopefully get you back on another time where we can just kind of talk about football or whatever and yeah maybe i should come out to uh maybe i'll come out to one of the uh, podcasts at fatties i know nick a little bit um get out of here yeah That's awesome. yeah my brother played for him at saint francis and um, Nick was real dialed into the hockey world, obviously. Um, so he helped my brother get to the USHL, and eventually he played at Yale, D1 at Yale, won a national championship there. But, yeah, my brother played for Nick and, and knows Nick really well, so I kind of know him through there. So, um, yeah, maybe I'll come out and uh, bring my daughter or something and hang out and meet you. So thank you so much for the opportunity to do this. Again, the blood and guts, how tight and safe football. Um, and Tyler Dunn, thanks for being on the Sportscasters. I appreciate you.
No, thank thank you, man. Had a lot of fun. Appreciate you. I'd like to thank Tyler Dunn and Joe Madden for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can hear this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you hear podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters. And my email is the sportscasters at gmail.com. Please reach out there if you disagree with anything I say or if you can correct anything I made an error or if you have a question or a comment. I love reading emails from people listening. Uh, don't forget, Greetings from Allentown podcast with Keithy and my friend Peter Winson. For more information, it's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. Uh, their latest episode is SummerSlam 1992, uh, which one is one of the most historic and great pay-per-views of all time. Also, my other podcast, the 24-inch podcast with Hollywood Dave Rollins and the beautiful Paul, Paula Bennett is back. We'll talk about more, more about that and one last thing in a second. Uh, for more information, follow me at 24-inch podcast on Twitter, email at 24inchpodcast at gmail.com. And please join us on Facebook by searching 24-inch podcast uh, and asking to join the group. We'll put you in there. And it's a great group, and you can find out all the information about the show. And I'm going to give more in a second, like I said, in one last thing. Um, but it's a, a really good community of people who listen to that podcast, and I'm proud of it. So I'm going to talk more about it in a second. Uh, and that's the information there. Oh, quick shout out to my friend Adrian Dater, who started yet another year of covering Avalanche hockey. Uh, his great site, ColoradoHockeyNow.com. I believe they're still running a special. I tweeted it out. It's at a dater on Twitter. You want to check him out. Good dude. Good friend of mine. Good dad. Good guy. Hard worker. Loves avalanche hockey. If you do too, defending cup champions, make sure you're at coloradohockeynow.com and not trusting things like the athletic or, um, you know, the Denver Post, whoever ever, whoever else covers the team, they're not Adrian. So, all right, one last thing for me today, and I did want to talk a little bit about the twenty-four inch podcast, real quickly, because it returned from hiatus uh, last week. Uh, the show had obviously been out like this one while I was ill, and even though I came back uh, much earlier in the end of the summer. My partner on that show, Hollywood Dave Rollins, wasn't available just yet. Uh, he had kind of changed the location of his job. His dog had passed away. Uh, Motley Crue was on tour. He only went to two shows, though, so I don't know. But he cites that as a reason. Uh, and we weren't able to record an episode until last week. Uh, and we did, and I thought it was a strong return. The show's obviously about Hulk Hogan and the glory days of the Hulkster with his 24-inch pythons, hence the name the 24-inch podcast. 
and it's not just Dave and I also, like I said, the beautiful Paula Bennett is also on the show. And she really steals the show weekly. She's in the first segment. Um, she does a few minutes. She comes in. She kills and she gets out. And uh, the people who listen to the show love her. Call her Paula Mania. And uh, I get emails all the time about her from people who listen. She really shines on it. And her confidence is growing and growing since we first started it. Uh, which has been amazing to watch. But she's part of it as well. Uh, but each week Dave and I look at a match from the Hulkster's career and it's not just about wrestling it it really in general it's very much a nostalgia play you know the next episode which will be up a few days after this one probably Monday or Tuesday uh, features the Hulk's appearance on the Saturday morning show Superstars in May of 1987 which then makes the podcast really about May of 87 we read the news and go back to May of 87 and talk about all the different things that were going on Uh, In that time, you know, we talk about wrestling from then. We talk about Hulk's matches. We talk about the other wrestlers. Uh, But it's really just a glimpse back into time. Uh, David Shoemaker, I've always said this, said the greatest thing on this show. He said, wrestling exists in people's past. And this show is based on that. You know, the the feeling is is that many of the people who listen to my show uh, loved wrestling when I did back in the 80s and the, the 90s. And that's what this show's about. And we cover anything from Hulk's entire career. Uh, we've done one WCW pay-per-view when he was Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Uh, we did his match versus The Rock at WrestleMania 18. Uh, and we've gone back as far as 1984. We haven't done anything pre-Hulkamania yet, but I'm sure we will do an AWA show at some point just for the fun of it. Uh, we do pay-per-views. We do syndicated shows. We do Saturday Night's Main Event. Uh, we take requests. It's a really fun show. Um, Dave is a maniac. He's someone that I just became friends with because we like the same things on the internet and we kept popping up in the same areas. And he's a, he's a really genuine character, uh, a really great friend, a really good dude, you know, a Jersey guy placed down the shore, you know, um, loves the same music. I do thinks about the world the same way I do. Um, it's great to Paula, you know, it's really been an unbelievable experience for her and I to be able to do the show, but that wouldn't have been able to happen if Dave wasn't into it. And, and Dave is, and I, I really appreciate him from that for that. Uh, we answer emails and tweets, and Dave gets questions from his friends, uh, and it's real communal. It's really fun. I love doing it. We do it every other week, so we do two a month. Uh, so far, since we've returned, we did two shows in 1987. Uh, And then going forward, we're going to do SummerSlam 1990. And then we're going to do Survivor Series 1991. And this Tuesday in Texas are going to be our November shows. And we're still trying to decide what we're going to do to end the season in December. We're also going to start doing some fun stuff like the Rock and Wrestling cartoon that Hulk did. We want to do a merchandise show. We're going to do a show on each of his movies. We're going to do a show. We did already did cover No Holds Barred. And also covered uh, the match, the movie. Uh, So I wanted to take a minute to talk a little bit about it more here on One Last Thing on this show. uh, Because it has returned. Like I said, it was gone a little bit longer than the Sportscasters was. But I'm glad it's back. And I hope we do it for a long time. Because I really do think it's a really good show. And I know Paul loves it. And I love doing it with her. 
And I love doing it with Dave, who's awesome. So again, you can find more information on Twitter at the number two, at the number four inch podcast. Uh, the email is the same, number two, number four inch podcast at gmail.com. We have a great Facebook group. Just search 24 inch podcast on Facebook. We'll let you into that. It's a lot of fun there. And the show's just a lot of fun. And it's really fun to look back on the news in 87. We were doing the news for the next episode the other night, and we we're talking about the Iran Contra scandal. Uh, this website that we use for this is obsessed with plays opening. So we talk about that, sports things that happened. Uh, we look back at some of the characters that made up wrestling uh, when we were kids in the 80s and 90s. But it's good to have both podcasts back. It's good to be back at all. Uh, thanks to everyone who's listened. Thanks to Tyler and Joe for debuting. Enjoy the baseball playoffs and the football this weekend. <laughs>